somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 52 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, curious tales and original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Bordersofsleep.com is where you can find out more information about the podcast, leave feedback, get in touch, join the email list, or even buy me a coffee. We're on Facebook as well, and it's always lovely to meet and interact with listeners. Thank you everybody who's been in touch in the last couple of months, and I really appreciate the support. The beautiful harp soundtrack to this episode is by Diana Rowan from her album The Bright Knowledge, which is available on Magnitude. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Guest Book by Seymour Jacklin It has often been given that the little people, the fairy folk, were volatile and have no real affection for humans, preferring to ensnare them or make them the butt of their caprice and wit. But it's simply not true. In spite of how it might seem to us, it's merely that they are different from us, and marching to their own tune is not malice. At worst, they are neutral. Yet more often they have our good at heart, knowing better than we do what that means and are therefore unjustly slandered. Mirabelle left a guest book in the tiny shed by the entrance to the nature reserve. It was just an old exercise book, with a hole punched in its spine and a pen on a piece of string threaded through. Three or four times in a year somebody might write in it. Mid-January that year, she went down on one of her less frequent visits, battling through the cold. There was little to do in the dormant parcel, but she liked to see if all was in order, and she would replenish the suet balls she kept hanging in the trees for the birds. She checked the shed. Damp had got it to the little pamphlet guides that she'd put out for visitors. They wilted in their boxes, untouched. But the guest book lay open on the potting table. Somebody had been and written in a round, open hand. On January the 1st, I came for the sunrise on the new year, early before the owls went home. What do the foxes know of the way that humans mark time? I didn't speak to a single tree that admitted to making a resolution, but I have resolved to return. Then again, an entry on the 10th of the month. Back today, 
amongst little scurries of snow, yet it brightened for a few moments at a time, as if the sun wanted to show me one thing more clearly and then another. Very few hardy shrubs, shrubby, shriveled apples clinging onto their branches, a freshly exposed meander of pebbles where the rainwater had made a river through the leaves. This place is more alive than ever. There was no name to these entries, but a signature of sorts, just a sweeping curl, like an inverted cursive letter C followed by three loops above the line that got smaller with each repetition. Mirabelle took off her gloves and rested her fingertips on the page reverently. Her breath came out in clouds. As she touched the writing, her only connection to the mysterious visitor, she tried to get a sense of who it could be, if only she could reach through the lines. Somebody young, she thought. Into her mind flashed an image of a childlike face framed in a woollen hat with a small mouth, a pale complexion, freckles and animal brown eyes keen and slightly narrowed. It made her think of herself as a girl, and she suspected that her imagination was just trying its best to help her. Nevertheless, this face stayed with her. A merry blend of curiosity and amusement came to play with her as she went about her chores that day. Perhaps more than that. It was the strangely warming sense that she had a friend. Someone out there had made contact, and whoever they were, she liked them. The following day she was awake before dawn, as usual for this time of year. An enchanted hour in which the sleep spell still held sway in the land, and the night, with all its secrets, was quietly stealing back into the earth. Her hands woke up ever so slowly as she filled the kettle. This was the ritual with which she brought the day into being, sparking a single spreading source of warmth as she lit the stove and set the kettle to stutter upon its blue flame. Again the little face showed itself to her mind, as if it had been left behind by a dream as the half-light retreated. She was eager to go back down to the reserve, to be a little closer to her new friend, so she poured her tea into a flask to take with her. The steam cascaded upwards in millions of tiny motes. She was warming up. She bundled herself in her woollen shawl that smelt of lanolin and pulled on her gumboots. The reserve was a short way down the track, accessed by a gap in the hedgerows, that accommodated an old field gate. The night had been open and clear, so there was a frost, but the sky was now canopied with low cloud, and she was grateful for the white outlining of the icy track. A coating of frost lay atop the gate, with the miniature ice crystals ranged up like a tiny forest. They looked faintly blue in the pre-dawn light. Iron clanked on iron, as she opened and closed the latch, letting herself in. She stood on a path that was hedged with dry bracken and had a ditch on one side, with compact bunches of rushes poking up. It was usually a little damp underfoot there, 
but the frost had made it like concrete and hardened the swirling ridges in the mud. The shed nestled with its back to the hedgerow a few yards away on her right. She wanted to hurry in there to check the guest book, but she sensed, as she often did, that there was a right order in which to do things, and she ought not to break the routine of her usual patrol along the path that skirted the perimeter of the nature reserve. As she walked, the light grew a little stronger, blue-grey dispersed, and it seemed reverently silent until a blackbird startled out of a hawthorn, scolding her for interrupting its berry breakfast. As if in reply, she heard a pheasant's cry like a rusty portcullis off in the woods, scraping. There were tiny movements in the hedge. A gentle slope pulled the sod away from the soggy ground and made a drier area to the east that harboured a few very ancient twisted apple trees. These fruited only sparsely in good years, and no market gardener would have tolerated such unproductive limbs. However, they entertained a presence, like a group of elders gathered and overlooking the landscape. Their silhouettes were impressive and they were worthy of respect. Their fissured bark and knotholes gave shelter to many creatures. Further back the heath gave way to woodland, such native trees as could keep their feet in the soft ground, alder, birch, goat willow, and deeper in oak, beech, and maple. Her circuit rarely departed from her regular route around the property, but she would find that the particular parts where she walked fast or slow would vary from day to day, sometimes lingering over details of some new thing that caught her eye, sometimes striding with the pleasure of movement, or standing still with a sense of her own uprightness between earth and air. This piece of land had come with the house, and nobody had done anything with it for decades. She could think of no better use for it than to dedicate it to the wildness that had already overrun it, and have it designated as a small nature reserve. The only government she imposed was to keep the paths passable, and this mostly by walking them regularly. As the sky lightened, the frost had begun to disperse upwards into a light mist that still clung to the ground. Rigid blades of ice-coated grass crunched under her feet, giving way to last year's fallen leaves crisp and outlined in white when she came to the edge of the woodland. Here she stooped and picked up a couple of dried oak apples from the ground. She always marvelled at their perfect roundness, like oversized marbles, but light as sponge, with a tiny hole in each of their brown speckled skins where the larvae had bored their way out. While her eyes sifted the woodland floor, she spotted a few of another sort of oak gall, the nopper galls. These were clearly made from the same stuff, but spiky, fanciful, exploded shapes, and no two of them looked the same. She pocketed a couple of these too. Like seashells, no longer needed by their owners, they felt good to hold and begged to be turned over between the fingers. 
She finished her patrol at the shed just as daybreak travelled between the horizon and the low clouds. The guest book lay just as she'd left it. The stranger had not been back. However, Mirabelle had determined during the night that she would leave something there and see if the guest responded. She put the oak apples on the table, the regular alongside the eccentric, both beautiful, and wrote under the last entry, Heavy frost overnight and grey this morning, but the icing gave a light of its own. Oak apples are a gift of the woodland, making up in beauty what they lack in sweetness. Writing was awkward. Her fingers and the ink in the old biro were cold and stubborn on the damp paper. She couldn't quite match the guest's flowing hand. I should put out a new book, she thought, for this one was sodden. But she also didn't want to interrupt the record. Perhaps it just needs a new pen. That would be a gesture. As she walked back up the track, her thoughts fell into familiar paths, scoping out what was to be done today, all the simple tasks of taking care of her place and providing for herself. She needed to check the chimney, since it had been smoking too much lately. There was wood to be brought in, a bucket to mend, eggs to be collected. She never felt alone out here. She only had to listen for a few moments at any time to hear the bleating of a sheep in nearby fields, or the croak of a jackdaw. She had a regular and pleasant exchange with the local farmers. Everybody helped each other out of their surplus time and produce, but for the first time in many years she felt she was not alone in her thoughts either. This other was there, just at the periphery of her awareness. It was only when evening came that she especially focused on the visitor and the guest book again, and she remembered how she might replace the pen in the shed, and perhaps the soggy old exercise book. This occasioned a rummage in the old bureau that turned up an old notebook she'd kept as a diary. The first few pages were filled with her neatest script, carefully documenting the erratic climate of her emotions twenty years ago. In the city, hopeful, bewildered, reading between the lines of all her human encounters, fretting whether she was good enough. But then... It fell suddenly silent. Nine-tenths of the book, empty pages. A white hole in which there was only the memory of a cascade of events that had caught her in their turbulence. Many things, too painful to write, or arriving too quickly for reflection. February came on damply with flurries of snow on some days that never settled. The ground underfoot was dank, and wherever she ventured out, there was mud. It was a few days before Mirabel went to check on the land again. She'd had passing impulses to go back, but she was waiting for the right moment. There would be a right moment, and she would know when it was. It came one late afternoon as the sun descended and broadened through spun layers of clouds. A strong breeze had kept the air cold and bitter all day, and then suddenly died off, and left everything suddenly still. 
she took a flask of sweet tea with her, intending to sit under the apple trees and watch the sunset collapsing and flattening into the horizon. The guest book lay open. She had left it with the oak galls lying on the page alongside her last entry, but the oak galls had gone, and instead there was a wooden pencil and a brass pencil sharpener, and there was a new entry below hers. I took my time today in the woods, resting my eyes on the particular forms of the trees, seen so clearly when they are bare, the candelabra ash, and the oaks whose age-long growth has writhed upwards, always questing an alternative path. Graphite, clay, and wood are also gifts of the earth. Together they will speak for us. Very clever, thought Mirabel. Of course this was a smart choice. The pencil would be far less susceptible to the weather than the old biro. It was another breadcrumb. She examined the pencil. It was unmarked and seemed brand new, offering no clues about its origin except that it seemed to have been made yesterday. Not so the pencil sharpener. That could have been an antique. It was cool and heavy in her palm and shiny, with patches of coppery tarnish and verdigris. Mirabel climbed the bank towards the apple trees. From the top she looked west. At this time of year the sun seemed to emerge from the far end of the woodland as it dropped through its low trajectory to the horizon. She sat down upon a root with her back to the bark of one of the old ones, and then let her eyes wander returning to the sky to find it changing by the minute. The sun was flattening out as if it was melting into the horizon. Then suddenly it was gone, and the clouds began to blush with the pink of dusk. Down in the woods the pheasants were giving their metallic yelps as they roosted, and the lapwing's bottle warble sounded over the fields. A soft evening began to consecrate the land. She felt for the first time, in its mildness, that the currents of spring were at last making their way towards the surface. Its tide was snagging upon the deepest roots and beginning to rouse them from sleep. She looked up into the branches above her. How about you, old apple? she asked. Are you going to waken this year and bring something to the harvest festival? During the following week, the mornings seemed to belong more each day to the emerging spring, bright, singing mornings, but the evenings would still return to the arms of winter under purpling clouds. Mirabel was still burning two logs each evening from her precious store, then going to bed early and drawing the quilt to her tightly. She visited the reserve not every day, and at different times of the day. So did her unseen guest, but they never coincided, and as their correspondence accumulated in the guest book, she stopped puzzling it out and settled to the idea that they might never be intended to meet each other in any other way. She noted one morning a huddle of snowdrops greeting her at the gate, bowing their heads in that self-effacing manner of theirs. Inside the reserve there were much more clusters hanging close to the hedge and marching in brave little bands into the woodland. 
she wrote in the guest book. White heads of snowdrops call a truce, and so the negotiations of the old year and the new are begun, one beauty giving gracious precedence to another. I hope these dutiful and unassuming souls are rewarded for their bravery. Long live the snowdrops. Several days later, the stranger wrote, Catkins are showing on the birch trees. Still tight and waxy, scaly things, but how suddenly they appear. I was here in the evening and was quite sure I heard toads honking, but they may have been distant geese. I saw neither in the low light, but the toads are undoubtedly stirring from slumber soon. The next day Mirabel went in the middle of the morning. Once again she brought a flask of tea to drink. She sat on a mossy log at the edge of the woodland, where a little frost lingered under the shadow, but the scene in front of her was awash with warm light. A delightful, bright morning. I could close my eyes and see even more with my ears, and I know spring is at the door when I hear the great tit huffing the miniature bellows of its throat, cheeping like a water pump that needs oiling. Some convocation of magpies was ratcheting away in the wood, and the hedges were full of dappled movement. The guest soon replied, Nests are being made, still so well hidden, even though the trees and bushes are translucently bare. I see the birds flying with their beaks full of winter-bleached grass. They are so picky about the pieces they choose, and yet I cannot distinguish one strand from another, or know how they decide exactly which piece they need. Between them, Mirabel and her unseen visitor kept an account of each subtle footfall of the approaching spring, the unfurling of catkins, the first buds of new growth, the unfolding of furry fiddlehead ferns. On the last day of February, Mirabel went shortly after sunrise, which came noticeably earlier and rather suddenly. Today, there was a clutch of freshly cut daffodils, poised in a jam jar, facing outward eagerly with their trumpet faces. The jar had become a lantern, bright with the refracting light of a single sunbeam that sliced through the window of the shed. In that perfect moment, Mirabel heard a skylark, climbing up and up and trilling in the sky above, and her heart went singing upwards too, faster than thoughts. There was a fresh entry in the guest book. All things yellow are the soonest to come. Flowers on the gorse and broom, the celandine and the primrose, and these beauties. May they bring the fanfare of the emerging year into your home. How wonderful, she sighed aloud to herself. Mirabel carried them back to her cottage. She changed her tablecloth to a white one, with trills of delicate green foliage woven all over it. Then she set the daffodils on the table, still in their humble jam jar, where once again the light from the window found them and set them aglow. Each time she looked at them she had a special delight in knowing that somewhere she had a friend, and not knowing quite where or who was also a right thing somehow, for, to tell the truth, not all of her friendships had gone well in the past. 
and she tended to come off as the one who did all the work. This distant kind of intimacy suited her for now. If March came in like a lion, it didn't roar, but it graced the sunlight with the glory of its golden flanks and trod gently through the fields. When it happened, it caught her off her guard. She wasn't quite ready for the mystery to be unveiled. She had decided to pay the briefest of visits to the reserve, just pop in and see if there was anything new. On such a day there was a late morning lull. The birds had done the work of singing the sun almost to its height, and they were engaged in foraging the hedges, bustling from branch to branch in a continuous game of musical chairs. Down the track the hardened mud had warmed enough to raise a slight shimmer in the air, and in the midst of it there was a figure walking towards her. It dipped out of sight because of an undulation and then emerged again, head, then shoulders, torso, legs, so it seemed to be growing out of the ground, but coming on steadily, bouncing slightly with its gait. She knew it was her mysterious friend. Her pace was so matched that they would come up alongside the gateway at the same moment. She fought a moment's urge to turn back and pretend that she'd not noticed. In her mind it wasn't going to happen like this. She'd imagined she would see before she was seen and have the chance to prepare herself. Nevertheless, her feet carried her forward, and when she was able to see the stranger's face, she saw that it was indeed a much younger woman. Her face was pale and her eyebrows dark in a way that accentuated her eyes. Her brown hair showed in two plaits that came down to her shoulders below a red-knitted hat. The girl was smiling broadly and watching her directly, not averting her eyes as strangers often do when approaching on a path. There was no doubt that she'd been noticed, and an interception was inevitable. They stopped at the gate, facing each other. They greeted each other spontaneously, with a laugh, like old friends in the habit of familiarity. The girl lifted herself up on her toes as she laughed and opened her mouth much wider than she needed to. Hello, said Mirabel, returning to some formality but still beaming with her eyes. Hello, said the girl. We meet at last. They introduced themselves. The girl said her name was Ariane, Mirabel in an instant forgot whatever had occupied her thoughts so far today, felt herself relaxing into the unexpected, as so seldom happened. You first, said Ariane, pushing the gate open for her. They filed into the reserve and stood just inside the gate, blinking, breathing, feeling the sun on their faces, two old friends sharing a moment of absolute contentment, with no need for words. Then they started to walk together, and it was obvious to neither of them whether the other was leading or following. When they came to a holly bush, standing forth still a deep evergreen against the pale and bare surroundings, brazenly reflecting the light from its glossy foliage, 
Ariane reached out and rubbed one of the leaves. Preparing and serving food all winter makes you tough and beautiful, she remarked. The holly was still sporting a few berries, new, bright and waxen as if they had bloomed that very morning. Tough and beautiful, Mirabelle assented. A little further on, Mirabelle pointed out the rugged gnarling of hawthorn trunks interlaced. I see so many faces in there, she said. Entire worlds, Ariane replied. A woodpecker battered its beak against a tree somewhere off in the woods, giving a sudden glimpse of depth there that was heard and not seen. It reminded Mirabelle precisely of the sound the staircase had made in her apartment, another place, a lifetime ago, and for a moment she was in two places at once. She was about to mention it when Ariane pointed out. That woodpecker's a rude wake-up call for a sleepy tree, she laughed. Mirabelle resolved herself to the present again, and thought of the old apple trees up the hill. I wish she would go and knock on those old apple trees and awaken them, I live in the hope that they will revive and fruit, she said. It seems they were well loved and cared for. I suppose they deserve to retire one day too, said Ariane. She pinched off the yellow folded wings of a gorse blossom and placed it on the tip of her tongue. Have you tried these? They're delicious. She closed her eyes and bit into the sweet petals. Mirabelle took some too and they stood side by side, savouring the sight and the taste of the blossoms all at once. Mirabelle felt her pleasure in each moment was doubled by having a friend to share it with. She'd grown used to chuntering in her head to an imagined version of Ariane, how much more perfect it was to stand within arm's reach of her. As they picked their way over the damper ground, the air cooled and brought to them the blended bitter tinct of mud and reed. Presently they stood on the highest point in the reserve, beside the apple trees, letting their eyes rove near and far over the mosaic fields and hedgelines in the surrounding heaths and downs. The sky above was an immaculate gradient of blue textured with sponge-dabbed traces of white cloud, and the skylarks were in full throat, high up, too high to be seen, but very much heard. The track back up to Mirabelle's cottage ran to the right and to the left in the direction from which Ariane had arrived. "'Will you come back to my house for a cup of tea?' she asked. "'That would be perfect,' said Ariane. They entered through the back door of Mirabelle's cottage. The oilskins on the back of the pantry door had warmed in the sun and accounted for the slightly rancid smell that met them there. They shook out of their outer layers and hung them up too. Ariane took off her hat, pulling a few strands of hair away from her plaits that then frizzed into a tawny halo. She sat at the table while Mirabelle fixed a pot of tea. The daffodils were still there and had kept their colour even though they were now papery dry and a little shrunken. When Mirabelle returned with the tea, they slipped into the easy ritual that accompanies it before there is any further exchange. Milk? Sugar? Just black, thank you. No sugar. Lovely. I'm sorry, is that a little strong? 
No, that's perfect. They observed the silence of the first sip, and then dared to engage each other's eyes again, both trying their utmost to make their contentment obvious to the other. I wondered if I would meet you today, Ariane began. There was something in the air. I even tidied my hair a bit. Usually it just does as it pleases. She smiled, then blew a stray strand away from her eyebrow. You have lovely hair, said Mirabel. Her own hair was salt and pepper grey, but thick, and she kept it pinned up tightly, but in a vaguely improvised manner. She wanted to jump in with questions. Where do you... she began, but she tailed off. She wanted to ask where Ariane lived, but it didn't seem appropriate somehow, as if it might break a spell if she were to pry too much. It wasn't like in fairy tales. The people in all the fairy tales she'd knew had been bold enough in demanding to know things. But maybe Ariane had heard her thoughts. She leant forward and touched her hand. You will come and see where I live one day. When the time is right, I know it, said Ariane then began to explain that her mother had grown up nearby, very close, in fact, on Crossing's farm, the land that encased Mirabel's little parcel. She used to tell me such tales from her childhood here. I believed them all, and I still do. They were not made-up stories for children, but they rarely happened to her. Stories about the fairy folk. I knew they were true. This is not the first Mirabel had heard of it since she had come here to live. She had heard the country people talk about the local sprites and blame them for many things. It had always sounded to her like a convenient and fanciful explanation for misfortune. And another thing, Ariane continued, as if her mind had locked into Mirabel's train of thought. In my mother's stories, the witches were never wicked, but they were wise and the fairies were never spiteful, but they were shrewd. And I believe that too. It's merely their otherness that has led to them being misunderstood and maligned. Yes, Mirabel whispered. She was trying to corral her thoughts enough to support some kind of response without speaking out of turn. She so rarely spoke with others these days. There hadn't been much need for it but this conversation was subtle and with its own form, like a golden thread to be followed. They see things we don't understand, she said. A certain balance to be observed in which we mortals are not to have more than our share. Ariane agreed. They chatted on until the morning was almost spent, even though it seemed their conversation happened outside the dictates of the clock. Ariane took her leave around noon, and they said goodbye without insisting on any plan to meet again. They both felt sure it would happen when it would. The next time Mirabel took the track down to the reserve, she noticed everything with a new intensity, as if a mist had lifted. Ariane seemed to be projected from her side and walking at her shoulder. A blackbird was doing sentry duty on the gatepost when she arrived. It didn't startle off until she put her hand on the latch, rather tipped its head and looked at her first with one eye and then the other. The hedges were still bare 
with their mess of twigs covering bowls of crooked elder and hawthorn that were faded like driftwood. The heads of the snowdrops were beginning to splay out and look a little ragged. She paused by the gorse, where she and Ariane had taken a little of its nectar, and it's there she saw a butterfly, a small tortoise shell, slow clapping its mottled orange wings open and closed with a rhythm like breath. It must have just lately surfaced, hungry from its hibernation. She held her breath for a cycle. Like all those of our ancestors who've made their paths in the wilderness, she couldn't help but read some portent of good fortune from an encounter like this. The first butterfly of spring, she whispered to herself. Certainly something to write about in the guest book. Just a few days later, Mirabelle came upon Ariane, sitting on her favoured moss bench in the woodland. It was a high afternoon, and warm enough even inside the woodland to go without a coat. Noticing her, Ariane called out, Happy Ides of March! I hope so, said Mirabelle. The two of them sat together for a while in the piebald shade, with their feet among the greening undergrowth and the galaxy of white wood anemones. They watched the hoverflies suspended in shafts of sunlight. Again, Ariane accepted an invitation for another cup of tea, and they wandered together back up to the cottage. The light came lower through the window and caught every tiny droplet in the steam from the amber column of pouring tea. Ariane was leaning forward as if she had something to say. She waited until the pouring was done, then she spoke. I saw you wrote in the guest book about the tortoise shell you saw. Oh yes, I had a funny thought that it may have been hibernating in the shed and dreaming about us writing in the guest book, so that it knew exactly when it would be the right time to come out, said Mirabelle. Do butterflies dream? Ariane mused. Then she leant forward again and put one shushing finger over her mouth. I'll tell you a secret, she said. Mirabelle wasn't sure where to look. The girl's eyes were so alive. She idly traced the pattern on the tablecloth with one finger. Ariane's eyes followed her fingertip in silence. Then she spoke again. I asked my mother about the tortoise shell once, for I had never seen this strange creature called a tortoise except in picture books. But then there were tortoise shell cats and glasses and combs and butterflies. Then she told me something that she had learned from the little people, as she called the fairies. Ariane continued, Every creature, before it is born here, passes through the earth on its way to its body. A journey of many steps. Just before they come into being, they pass through the marbling pools, and that's where they're imprinted with the distinctive markings that they'll show when they're full-grown. She told me that a tortoiseshell butterfly and a tortoise both pass through the same marbling pool. Isn't that a thing? But the tortoiseshell comes as a caterpillar first. It's a spiky black and yellow worm, said Mirabelle. 
Oh yes, but its full form has those radiant wings. That's what the marbling pool indulges. So in the chrysalis, they're just remembering who they are, said Mirabelle. Ariane nodded. Every creature, Mirabelle murmured. She studied Ariane's freckles for a few moments while the girl's eyes were still on the patterned tablecloth. Then she let out her breath in a slow sigh. How sad, it seemed to her, that humans had so quickly forgotten these things, forgetting how their pure souls had arrived already baptised, and then tried to live so often shamed for their particular markings. She suddenly thought of something the sculptor Michelangelo had said. The sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It's already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. She was about to mention this, but her eyes tangled once again with the patterned tablecloth, and the swirls began to dance with life as if she were looking into the depths of one of those marbling pools. Instead, she said out loud, every kind of story is rarely a kind of remembering. The words seemed to come from inside her, as if another had spoken through her, but it came from her remembering self, and she knew it in her knowing bone. The moment was held between them for a few breaths, while Ariane nodded slowly. I suppose the same goes for tortoiseshell cats, she said suddenly. No wonder they're so wild at heart. They both laughed. That was it. The spell was broken. But even that was right. The loom shuttle needs to pause at the end of the weft before it flies through again. They spoke of more commonplace things until it came close to dusk, and Mirabel got up to turn on the lamp. I should leave before dark, said Ariane. I should put the chickens to bed, said Mirabelle. They said goodbye at the top of the track. The moon was showing just above the hills, partially, oval and pinkish, as if it was a great egg about to hatch the night. Oh, it's a full moon, said Ariane. A full moon on the Ides of March, said Mirabelle. The last full moon of winter. We'd better keep our wits about us, said Ariane. Mirabelle watched her walking down the track until she got as far as the gate to the reserve, where she seemed to stop. In the gloom, she could not tell whether Ariane had continued or turned aside through the gate. The moon hoisted itself into the sky, and a low mist began to settle into the hollows. The hens had already put themselves to bed and were waiting for her to shut them in. She didn't bother lighting the fire. She felt warmed from within, and she felt tired, a goodly weariness from a day well spent. She sat for a long time with her old diary on her lap, but didn't open it again. No use raking over the dead coals, she thought. Tomorrow is another day. She did occupy herself a while wandering about Ariane. Still she was a mystery, but she was smart and kind, and it was nice to see in someone so young. But how old was she exactly? 
She climbed the stairs to bed with this one thought, that kindness is the true measure of maturity. Mirabel woke up before dawn, but she was deeply rested. The dawn chorus was rising in intensity, even heard through the walls and windows of her room. Suddenly she wanted to be in the midst of it, out there, perhaps to see the sun come up again. It had been another clear night, so it was cold. So cold she buttoned herself into several layers while the kettle boiled. Then she filled her trusty flask and set off in the murk. The track was in deep shadow but firmly frosted underfoot. Her peripheral senses took her well beyond what she could see with her eyes, for every copse and hedge was filled with the clamour of birds near and far. The countryside was overlaid with a topography of sounds. It was surely her blackbird gatekeeper who alerted her that she was close to the entrance of the reserve. From the gateway she could see the sky beginning to pale and brighten to the east, and the apple trees loomed in silhouette against it. She took the path towards them. Coming closer, she noticed light on the trunks, paler than the morning sun, almost green and seeming to glimmer. It was beautiful. She thought it could be droplets of dew, but there was also a snaking motion of light against the trees, as if it was reflected from water. She was so intent upon this, and hurrying, that she didn't notice Ariane crouching in the grass until she almost fell over her. Shh! A pale face looked up at Mirabel. Ariane motioned frantically for her to drop down beside her, then pointed towards the apple trees. Mirabel fell on her knees and peered up the hill beyond the hummock of grass in front of them. She disbelieved what her eyes saw. At first it looked like a glowing liquid in motion. Surely this was a trick of the light. But as she stared, the flickering interplay of light and shadow resolved into a throng of small figures in motion. The light came from them in green and blue strands as if they were wearing the threads of it, and it followed their swaying motion first one way, then the other, circling the base of the apple trees. Although they seemed to be dancing and keeping time with one another, there was a ghostly silence. She caught glimpses of their faces too, flickering impressions of them that seemed not to be connected to any body in particular. Some seemed wizened and others childlike, and perhaps even both at once. All of a sudden one of them would leap up into the air and turn a somersault, land on its feet and continue without missing a step. Ariane whispered, It's a good thing we cannot hear their music, because then we'd be compelled to join in. Mirabel was surprised how big they seemed for little people. These were not the tiny folk she'd seen in picture books, perching on flower stalks, but more the height of a weasel, and terribly slender. Then she noticed that some of the little people appeared to be beating all manner of percussion. Tambourines were held aloft, and what looked like empty hazelnut shells clapped together. These musicians were concentrated around another group that was moving among them, 
carrying a sort of cauldron on their shoulders, slung between two poles, and occasionally another would break from the dance and come and fill a nutshell from it and carry the liquid back to the dancers whence it was passed from one to another until it needed refilling. It seemed to put a fire into their steps. The dance increased in intensity as the dawn sky brightened and the sun was surely beginning to ascent over the horizon on the other side of the hill. Ariane whispered again, They're watering the trees. Indeed they were, if water was what it was. For not only were the cups passed among the dancers, but it seemed, when a cup was almost drained, one of them would rush to the base of an apple tree and pour the rest of its contents upon the roots before going to refill it. I wonder if they're waking them up, Mirabel answered. The salmon tones of the new day were fast overwhelming the subtle hues of the dancers and their light, so they became increasingly difficult to perceive. And then suddenly the orange arc of the sun's brow lit the top of the hill, and they were seen no more. Only the mist of dew held a faint, swirling impression of where they had been. Mirabel and Ariane stayed down in the damp grass, but turned onto their elbows facing each other. I think you will have good apples this year, said Ariane. Then all of a sudden they were both overcome with laughter, ludicrous intense waves of it, and so we shall leave them rolling with undignified mirth and full of the joys of spring.